You're listening to Moments from the Mount with Pastor Benjamin Schaefer. We hope you enjoy this episode of Life's Big Questions. For more information, go to mtcalvaryreading.org. Tonight is uh, our second to last lesson, so next week will be our last one. And uh, next week we're going to end with Jesus is coming back, so it's a good way to go out. Um, that's, uh, and tonight we're going to deal with uh, where do I belong, that, that sense of belonging that God wants us to have. But first, let's, uh, let's just begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us here as your people called to faith in Jesus by the power of your word, uh, gathered around that word and seeking direction from you for our lives. Help us to see that we belong to you and that you have a place for us in this world among your people now and forever in heaven. Uh, Bless our study and our time together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we'll take a look at the questions from last time. And I was generous. I changed it to agree or disagree. So given I gave in. I caved. I folded like a lawn chair. Okay. <clears throat> so number one, agree or disagree. We talked last time about the seventh commandment, you shall not steal. The eighth commandment, you shall not give false testimony. And then the ninth and tenth commandments that deal with coveting, kind of that sinful desire for things you shouldn't want to have. Okay, so number one, seeking to find tax loopholes is a direct violation of God's will in the seventh commandment. Agree. Agree. Disagree. Okay, why? Why do you agree? Well, because it's stealing from the government. Okay. It's a loophole. I mean, which to me would mean that it's not like, you know, you're, oh, you're saying you um, gave this amount to this charity when actually it was less than that. Mm. Isn't, I mean... Wouldn't that be a loophole, or is a loophole just? I mean, if it's a if it's a true something you can actually, you know, is within the tax code, then no, it's not. That's okay. Totally fine. Yeah. It depends on what like, a loophole is. Like, yeah, that's what I when I read it, I'm thinking a loophole meaning like a way to cheat. Okay. <laughs> a way to cheat. I think of it as you have this rule, and this may not fall under this rule. It's like a little loophole you can go around it. Yeah, but I think that's totally fine. If it's, if it's uh, you know, you can't get in trouble for it, basically. Right, right. Yeah, and that's, that's where I put disagree because of that. What does it mean by loophole? And um, and then a direct violation, you know, I think it might be more, it, it's still a violation, but it's more an indirect violation. Like, you didn't actually go to the government and take money from them. You know, that's like kind of a backdoor way of avoiding giving them something. And I do know a financial planner, he's a, a good Christian man, but he says, um, you, you give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but not a penny more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Right, yeah, exactly. Okay, number two, coveting and stealing both flow from a lack of contentment. Yeah, I think agree in in general. There's always that heart problem. I think that's the point with the question, too. And there might be other circumstances. You know, people might steal because they're out of work and they need to feed their family or something like that. But at the heart of it, do you trust the Lord? Are you content in Him? to take care of you even in tough situations. Okay, number three, in God's eyes, some sins are morally more reprehensible than others. 
Disagree, right? All sins condemn us in God's sight. And yet there are some sins that in a, when it comes to the circumstances or the impact they have on your faith, the Bible says those are more dangerous. And God says there is a, a, a level of sin, so to speak, when it comes to how it affects you. You know, if you plan out a sin, I think I've mentioned this before. If you plan out a sin and you really want to do that sin and you're not sorry for that sin and you're going to do that sin again, that's worse than stubbing your toe and letting a bad word fly out of your mouth, right? Which is also sin. God says, don't let filthy language come out of your mouth. But that that would be way worse for your spiritual well-being, for your relationship with God. It kind of is making it seem like you don't care about God because you really like that sin. Um, so that's where there is a there can be a distinction among sins, but in this sense, not all sins are morally reprehensible. They're all on an equal plane. They all condemn us in God's sight. Okay, number 4, sometimes giving people what they ask for isn't the most loving thing we can do for them. Agree, right? Yeah, anybody with kids knows that's not the case, right? Uh, and yet in like society, sometimes we struggle with that. Like as a, what's the best thing to do for people? Well, um, that's not always easy. Somebody says, give me, you know, cab five bucks, man. Like, well, I don't think that's a good idea to give you that. Um, um, number five, it is much easier to talk about someone than it is to talk to someone when they've sinned. Agree. In general, you know, in general, it's easier to talk about somebody. Did you hear what so-and-so did? Right? Rather than going to someone and saying, did you actually do this? Did you? I'm worried about you. What's up? You know. Um, okay, number six, we obey the commandments out of love for God, to please God, and to win God's favor. Agree. Anybody want to disagree? Yeah, I do. Okay. What may, what, what? I don't like the last part. Okay, it's the last part. That, that one, that, that, that last one just has the idea that maybe we're, we're kind of doing it like to get, get a higher place in heaven or something, you know? Um, but we do it out of love for God to, it pleases God to do these things. And to win God's favor, the tough part is that to please God and to win God's favor are often synonyms in the Bible, you know? Um, so that's, but, that winning, winning God's favor, we're really not like he's, he already loves us, right? He already favors us as his children, so we don't have to win that in any sense. Well, um, I was just focused on the first part. Yeah. <laughs> the, the love for God, it's not a command. We don't have to, like from the Old Testament, but because we love God because of what he, Jesus has done for us. Oh, yeah. So I wasn't focused on that other Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's the proper motivation that we love because he yeah. first loved us. And that's, yeah. Okay, number seven, God is concerned not only with the sins of our lips and hands, but also with the sins of our hearts. Agree, yeah. And that's where te- churches that tend to be like holiness churches or thinking that, that you could be perfect this side of heaven, they change what sin is. Sin is the bad stuff you do out there. And, you, you know, what happens in here? Well, that's just being human. You know, that's no big deal. Well, actually, that's where the real problems are in here. And we, gotta, we, we need forgiveness for that, too. Uh, the number eight, the ninth and tenth commandments are the easiest commandments to keep. You shall not covet. Disagree. Disagree. Why? I mean, it depends on the person. Everybody okay. has their own um, struggles. 
list and yep. everything. So I think that would just depend on the person. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but sometimes people might say, well, um, you know, stealing is easier to keep because I'm not going to take somebody's stuff, you know. Um, but the ninth and 10th commandments are really harder to keep mm-hmm. because it deals with right at the heart. I mean, it's not just the outward stuff. It's right at the heart. Don't, don't think bad desires. Don't think bad thoughts about other people's stuff. You know, yikes. Um, okay, number nine, when we are content in God's grace, we don't need to worry about image and status with others. Agree. Agree, yeah. When we, we know we're loved by God, you know, what other people think about us hopefully becomes less and less because we know what our true identity is, we know who we are, and we're loved by him. And then number 10, the percentage of our income spent on luxuries should never exceed the percentage we give to the Lord himself. So is that an actual rule? <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I put disagree, but it gets you thinking, like, how much do you like give to the Lord or give in offerings to thanks? I mean, there are lots of causes you could support in our country and lots of good places to you know do mission work, too. So does that exceed your... Your luxuries where you're just like splurging on yourself, you know. Again, there's no rule on this, but a lot of times what's easy to do, right? I, you know, I, I need a new this. I want a new that. Uh, but then when it comes to mission work or supporting a ministry somewhere or helping somebody who's in need even, that's a, that's a gift of thanksgiving to God. It's kind of like, well, I don't really have money to help you. Sorry, Bob. Um, you know, that, that we, we kind of hold it close to the, to the chest. Um, okay. Tonight, where do I belong? Belongingness. It's social psychologist term. It deals with the human emotional need to be accepted. And we all have this to a varying degree, obviously. Some more than others. Um, but the consequences for not belonging to something are dire. Lack of motivation, decreased productiveness, depression, even suicide. And the Lord himself noted that he created us with this interconnectedness when he said, it is not good for mankind to be alone, back in Genesis 2. So this lesson is going to explore our need to belong to the household of faith and what life within God's family will look like. So we're going to try and answer that question, where do I belong? So, first, let's, uh, let's get into it. Let's read John 3.16 together. Um, there, we're going to talk about some mysteries of the Christian faith. First of all, the mystery of conversion. So why don't we read it together? Everybody see that where I'm at on the sheet? Let's read. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And now connected with that is, is right underneath the question, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So what's the only way that somebody can be saved and not perish? Believe in him. Okay, to believe in him, right? To believe, whoever believes... Um, will not perish, shall not perish, but will have eternal life. And who gives us the ability to believe? 
Okay, the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the one who works faith in our hearts. God gave His one and only Son. God gave. God did the work that whoever believes in Him will not perish but will live. Will not die but will enjoy heaven forever and ever. So who does God love in that passage? Okay, all people, all the world. So do all people go to heaven? No. No, right? So this is kind of this is the mystery that the mystery of conversion that God loves everybody and Jesus died for everybody, but only by God's gift of faith do people enjoy eternal life. Only through faith are we saved. So faith, faith, conversion is a fancy term for when God turns us from unbelief to belief. From not believing in Jesus to trusting in Jesus as our Savior. We're turned around. Um, converted is the, the technical term. We're converted to faith in Christ. So um, this is, a, this is a mystery how this happens. The Holy Spirit works. We know he uses instruments like the Word of God, like baptism, and he turns us around. Now, can a person choose to reject the Holy Spirit and remain dead in their sin, dead in unbelief? Look at Acts 7, verse 51. Stephen said, You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you don't want to listen. You're just like your father's. You always resist the Holy Spirit. So he was talking to people that were rejecting Jesus, that didn't, they were actually stoning him. They were about to put Stephen to death. He's the first martyr, the first person to die for his faith. So can people reject God's gift of faith? What does that mean, remain dead in sin? Dead in sin, that's our natural condition when we come into this world. That we're dead, we're life, lifeless spiritually, and we are just content that way. That's why most people are not like, oh, I should you know, go to church today. Because we're dead in sin, we're, we're totally comfortable living in sin. Like a dead body in the grave, we are, we are done, we're, we're dead. So can we choose to reject the Holy Spirit and remain in that spiritual condition? Yes, yep. I mean, the Bible makes it clear, yes, we can reject, we can resist the Holy Spirit. That's what Stephen is saying here. You're resisting the Holy Spirit. I'm telling you Jesus is the Savior, and you're shouting at me and yelling at me and putting me to death. You don't care. Now, the opposite side of that same question, can a person choose to accept the Holy Spirit and become alive in Christ? Look at what Jesus said. John 15. Jesus said, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. So Jesus, talking to the 12 disciples the night before he dies, says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. So can a person choose to accept the Holy Spirit and become alive in Christ? No. This this is the mystery. This is this is the mystery. Because he chooses us. Yeah, see Jesus chooses us. So then okay, if you're if Jesus died for all the world and the Holy Spirit is the one who works faith, and faith is what 
connects us to him and, and rescues us. And well, then why doesn't he choose everybody? Which is exactly what we're talking about here. Um, that God, the Bible makes it clear that um, God has chosen those who will believe. And that's it. So you have what's called the the chosen, the elect of God, and God God chooses those. God has selected those people. And, and for Ephesians, the next passage, kind of down on the sheet, talks about this. Ephesians 1, verse 4. For he, God, chose us in Christ before the creation of the world. So when did he choose us to come to faith? Before the world existed. Yeah, before creation. So our... our there's a number of things at play here, but the big one is that he, God has chosen some people for salvation. What, what do we naturally think? If he chose some to go to heaven, what? he chose some to go to hell. But the Bible doesn't say that. He did, the Bible never says that there's a, like a, a chosen group and a non-chosen group. Now, logically, we would want to make that distinction. Right, we want to make that, but the Bible never says that's the case. This this doctrine of election is what it's called, or election or predestination is a doctrine of comfort. That God wants you to know He's chosen you, He wants you, He loves you. And it's got I, I kind of talked about it yesterday in, in church that there is there is a plan. So before creation, God chose you. And then in time, when, you know, let's say 1988, you came to believe in Jesus, right? In time, he called you through the gospel. So you heard God's word, you went to a Bible study or something, and you're like, man, I, this is amazing. Jesus died for me. And then there's a guarantee from God, too, that at the end of your life, you will be glorified. And you will enter heaven. And, and this all hangs together. This whole thing. And it's, it's supposed to be a comfort that God knew you a long time ago, and he's going to take care of you to the end. And that's really what this doctrine is about. And that's why it fits with this question, where do I belong? God says, Right here, hearing his word, being sure that, that he sent his son for you because Jesus came for the whole world and you're part of the world and he died for you. And so, but there are all these other questions, right? Like, what about the, the non-chosen people? <laughs> what, about, uh, what, what about the people who don't have faith? You know, where do they fit into this? And, and God says, go out and talk to them. Go out and let them know that Jesus died for them too. Because um, it's not our place to kind of lump people into categories like um, here's the elect, here's the non-elect. Um, are, are you saved or not saved? No, Jesus came for the whole world. And, and by God's grace, you and I know this and trust this. So questions, yes. comments? So you said um, he came for the whole world, yep. but there's chosen and non-chosen. No, no, don't, don't think of it that way. 
The, don't think. The Bible never talks about that as non-chosen. Logically, we want to go there. Don't go there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or like, I've heard people say like unsaved. Like UN unsaved. Like I, I was like, whoa, whoa, where's that coming from? Like that's not, the Bible never talks that way about people. Um, Jesus came for everybody and everybody you meet is somebody for whom Jesus died so we could share the gospel with them. We can assure them that Jesus is their savior too. Believe it. Believe it. Trust it. Jesus died for you. Don't doubt it. That's really the purpose of this teaching. Yeah. And to remind us that there's a whole lot in the Bible we don't understand. A whole lot about God that we're not going to understand. Um, and this has caused a lot of trouble within the, the Christian church. So during Martin Luther's time, there was another reformer. His name was John Calvin. John Calvin came up with the answer that if there are some chosen, there must be some non-chosen. And that's called, it's reformed churches have a teaching called double predestination. Um, the big one in town that teaches that is Cow Creek, um, the Christian church. I think it's in Palisadro. They, they teach double predestination, that there are some people for whom Jesus did not die. Like, ooh, uh, can't find that in the Bible. Huh? And how do they determine that? Um, that's a good question. They, they put a lot more emphasis on you have to prove in your life that you're one of the saved. You know, it's a very, it's a very tough thing. You know, it puts a lot of like, well, am I one of the saved? It, it makes you question yourself rather than looking to the cross, looking to the empty tomb. Absolutely, he did this for me, you know. Um, but so that's what John Calvin came up with. John Calvin had a disciple named Jacob Arminius, and Jacob Arminius didn't like this idea about God choosing. Uh, so he went with the man choosing that we have the ability to reject, which is true, that's in the Bible, we have the ability to reject, but he would say we also have the ability to choose Jesus Christ. And that's most of Christianity in America is decision theology. You need to pray the prayer and ask Jesus into your heart, and then you can be sure that you're saved. You have the power. But again, that's not, that's not biblical either because a dead body can't bring itself back to life. Right? And somebody who's dead spiritually can't bring themselves back to life. Um, so, again, this, this is one of those teachings, again, that doesn't make a lot of sense logically, but we just, what does the Bible say? What does it mean for us? And then, how can we take confidence in it, too? Um, you belong. This is a place for you. Jesus died for you. So how I look at it is I chose to start coming here. Yes. <laughs> Yes, and there are some decisions like that that are good, and I'd encourage people, you know, to invite a friend and, um, you know, things like that. That's always good. But then the real miracle is that God works on our hearts to bring to us to faith, to want to go and to want to come and to want to learn more and, you know, and to have more conversations. And, and, and then you, you wake up one, one day, 10 years from now, and you're like, man, when, when did I, when did I not believe? You know, what was that like before? You know, um, sometimes people look for like a moment, like what, you know, and that's that whole decision theology. Can you pinpoint the moment you were saved? And if you have a really good story, then you must really be saved. Like you were a drug addict and you were in the gutter, but then you turned it over to Jesus. And the rest of us are like, well, I just kind of went to church and, <laughs> you know, like that, that again, the Bible doesn't, set us up as like, you know, there are better stories than other stories. Our stories are all the same. We're sinners. Yeah. And 
we're, we're lost and Jesus found us. Because it's there in them. Right. But who's bringing it out? Are they bringing it out themselves? Are they a member of a church? Are they not a member? Are they just going through life? You know, but in the end, we're all. Yeah, we're, we're all. How are we? Yeah, we're all lost and Jesus finds us. And sometimes things in life happen that make you more open to hearing about God. You know, a tragic accident, or you lose your job, or a family member is diagnosed with a disease, and then you're you're like, oh, you start looking, and you're more open to hearing. You know, how do you get through this? You know, and then that's where we as Christians have great opportunities to just witness and let the Holy Spirit work and say, Jesus came to give us hope in dark in dark moments like this. And and I'm so thankful that he died, that he rose again, and that we can know we know where we're going because of Jesus. And and you can have that confidence too right now, as you're facing stage four cancer. Don't be afraid. Jesus came for you. So that's where like this all kind of comes together. That it can help us. How do we encourage people to to belong and to 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 rejoice in what Jesus did for them? That um, the the God is the one who does the choosing and the and the bringing to faith. We're just here to to be His instruments, and that's kind of where we're going to go with this too. Our mission. Oh, well, I was just going to say the thing that you said about like you wake up ten years later, and our, I mean that totally happened to me because I didn't grow up going to church until you know, like I said, I was in youth group and as in high school, and that's what brought me and stuff. But I remember thinking one day, like years later, thinking, who did I have conversations with in my head before that? You know, because like, yeah. I mean, all, all day I'm like having conversations with God, you know? Yep. And I yep. have no idea, like, how it was before that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> He's a great listener, right? He's a... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, and th- this is part of the miracle. That, that It's a mystery, too, how this all works. But God wants us to know that he's got a place for us, a place to belong. Okay, let's go on to the next page here. Then what is this place called? This is the Holy Christian Church. The, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints. Those are the same thing. So when we confess that in the creed, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, is the same invisible gathering of believers. And it's people. This is a church that's not a building. It's the people who believe in Jesus Christ. Um, So, um, God talks about this, that the Holy Christian Church is all believers on earth and in heaven who have been brought by the Holy Spirit to repent of their sins and trust in Jesus for forgiveness as their Savior. So, who alone knows for sure who is a member of this church? Look at 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. Uh, the Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So who alone knows who, who really believes in Jesus? Okay, God is the one. Um, God alone knows those who belong to him. And God doesn't make any mistakes. You know, God knows. 
And um, God gives us a picture of this holy Christian church. This, this is kind of an invisible gathering of all the people who believe in Jesus. That, that we all belong to the same church, even though we might not be at the same place on Sunday morning. We're all part of this invisible church. And the Bible talks about this church, this building. And it actually talks about it a fair amount. So let's read Ephesians 2, 19 to 22. You've got it on your sheet there. Um, Paul wrote, You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So you are this building. Who's the cornerstone of this building? Okay, Jesus Christ, right? The cornerstone of the building is Christ. And that we kind of lose that in today's world with the cornerstone. You know, we don't really lay a cornerstone when we build a building. But in the ancient world, they'd do it. And it would have to be a piece of stone that was cut perfectly. And if it was cut off at all, the rest of the building would be off. You know, so that cornerstone was a real important piece to the building. So that's our cornerstone is Christ. He guides, directs. He's the first foundational piece. And then the, it says the foundation of the church. What's that? What does Paul say the foundation is? Okay, apostles and prophets, right? Now, what does this refer to? Okay, it's the Old and New Testaments. Prophets in the Old Testament, apostles in the New Testament. So it's shorthand for God's Word, the Bible. That we are built not on people, you know, not on like the the saints, like, you know, the Roman Catholic Church is built on the saints, you know, and they kind of, they would say they're the foundation, you know. Um, nope, the foundation is God's word because human beings, we're fallible, we make mistakes, we're not perfect, even the apostles were, were sinners, but it's the word of God that is our foundation and that we, that directs us. Now, so you've got the, this um, invisible church, this holy Christian church, of all believers in Jesus from all time. Now, but then you've got visible groups of people, right? Um, and Jesus told a parable of weeds and wheat. You remember that parable? It's a, it's in Matthew 13. Jesus said that there are the, the, there's the world and he scatters his seed, good seed, wheat seed. But then the devil comes and scatters bad seed. And you have this grow together. Good seed and bad seed grow together. And the angels said, oh, we should pull out the bad seed. And Jesus said, nope, you're not, you're not good enough to do that. Only I can do that. Wait till the harvest. Wait till the end, the end of a person's life or the end of time, and I'll take care of the harvesting. So what Jesus is talking about there is how, how in this world you can have believers and unbelievers even within visible Churches. You can have weeds and wheat right next to each other within churches. So how does this happen? Why does this happen? Right? We're going to kind of talk about that a little bit. So you, you've got um, a little graph here. This is my wonderful artwork here. Enjoy this. Um, the church 
The, 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 the whole big circle is the Holy Christian Church. So the communion of saints. That's kind of a diagram. And so we are connected to the church triumphant in heaven. Everybody who believes in Jesus and is in heaven. We're still connected to them. We're still part of the same church with them. And actually when we take Holy Communion, you ever notice how, how the altar area is kind of a half circle? You ever notice that? I mean, it's in our church it's a little straighter. <laughs> Some churches it's really curved. And the idea with that is that when we take Holy Communion, we're at the marriage feast of the Lamb, at the marriage feast of Jesus, and the other part of that circle is in heaven. And we're at the same table with all believers who have gone before us. This great, wonderful feast of God's love and forgiveness. And so that, that's kind of illustrated here, that we're still connected to those in heaven. Now, we're the church militant on earth. We're fighting. We're struggling. It's not easy. And, but everybody who believes in Jesus is there. And then you have these little circles of visible Christian churches. And you have believers and hypocrites, what Jesus said. Um, unbelievers, but a, a really a certain kind of unbeliever, a hypocrite. Somebody who says one thing but doesn't believe it. They're mixed in there. So you've got part of the visible church is in the, in, in the invisible church, and part of it is out of it. right? So some people are in the Holy Christian Church. Some people are out of it. Some people are going to church on Sunday morning because they really believe in Jesus as their Savior. And some people are going because their grandma dragged them to church. Right? Now, like Jesus said, it's not our job to try and figure out who's who. This is just recognizing that this, that this is a reality in a sinful world. Not everybody is going to church for the right reasons. Right? So... This, this also shows the different churches and how they're connected. Like we could have, you know, you've got a Lutheran church, you've got a Roman Catholic church, and they're all believers in Jesus who are in that church. So um, like, like Lutherans, for example, we're not going to be the only ones in heaven, right? There'll be believers from other churches in town, from neighborhood, from risen king, from, from Bethel, dare I say it? <laughs> They'll be with us in heaven. Right, We'll get to see them there. And even right now, because they believe in Jesus as their Savior, they trust in Him just like we do, we're, we're with them as part of the, the invisible, holy Christian church. So the Bible, Bible kind of talks about that. Um, now, there, are, there is that. So then why are there so many churches today? Right? Why, why, are, why are we separate from all these other churches? Can't we all just get along? Right? Don't we all just believe in Jesus? Right? That's where there are other things that the Bible talks about with regard to churches. So, uh, why are there so many churches? You've got the Baptists, you've got the Methodists, you've got the Presbyterians, the United Church of Christ, all these different churches, right? Well, why, why are there so many of them? Let's look at the Bible passages here. First, 2 Peter 2, verse 1. Peter said, but there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them. And then Jesus said, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. So looking at those passages... Why do you think there are so many churches today? 
saying is that there will be false teachers. So, so where does the separation in churches come from? Not from Jesus. From, from mankind, yeah, from false teachers, from from the the sin that dwells among us. There'll be there are many churches because there are many false teachers that twist God's word, that that even deny the sovereign Lord who bought them. So that you have churches that say, "Yeah, Jesus died for you, but you got to work your way into heaven, and you've got to say say your hail Marys, and then you'll get into heaven." Right. That's why there are so many churches. And there are, there are Christians who still say, no, that's not right. I can't go along with that. And so why is the, why are there so many churches? Is it because, um, because we're so rigid as Lutherans and we think we're better than everybody else? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. It, it, you, you see, like, when you understand that how destructive false teaching can be to our faith, we can't just ignore it. You know, we can't just get along, go along to get along. Right? We gotta, we, this is what God's word says. We have to witness to that and testify to it. And so Jesus even said, watch out for those false prophets. And you know, no, I, it, no false teacher wakes up, at least, most of them, they don't wake up and they say, you know what, I think today I'm going to introduce a false teaching. You know, They never say that, right? They're always sincere. They're always, and yet the devil is working on them and their own sinful nature is working on them. Would, would Jesus have been talking more in the direction of being concerned about... That? Because everywhere he went or the, or the apostles went... Behind them were people who would come into this town after them and do preaching as well to try to undo what they were doing. Oh, sure, yeah. So that you could you could have a warning because of things like that, but mm-hmm. could he also been talking about the Pharisees and, um, and, and their teaching? Oh, yeah, yeah. They look good on the outside, right? But they're well, inwardly they're ferocious beasts, you know. Um, another another fa- favorite of Jesus is to call the the false teachers whitewashed tombs. On the outside, they're whitewashed; they're real nice looking tombs. But on the inside, what, what's on the inside of a tomb? Death. Dead death, right? Dead body, dead bones, right? That's what the whitewashed tomb um, was. One of his his uh, accusations of those people. So yeah, so there are all these other churches out there, but it's because of the devil at work because of sin and because of false teachers spreading that false teaching. And then God's people, people who do care about what he says, saying, no, that's not right. We can't, we got, there's got to be a separation here. Um, so the division is actually, the Bible says sometimes that division is a good thing because it shows who's with the Lord and who's not. And who's following God's word and who's not. Um, and that, so that can actually be a good thing. So then how do you find a church home? How do you, how do you choose a church home? Um, where should I belong? Let's look at John 8. Um, sometimes people think of choosing a church home like choosing a restaurant, right? What do I, what do I feel like today, huh? Right? Jesus has a different take on it. John 8. Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. So what makes somebody really Jesus' disciple? 
Okay, holding on to what he teaches, what he says, right? Um, so that means we can know what it is. You know, he's not like hiding it from us. If he says, if you hold to my teaching, you'll, then you'll know the truth. So there is truth out there, absolute truth. Jesus wants us to know it. He wants us to be set free from the devil, set free from our sins. And he says we can know it. Now, Romans 16, uh, verse 17, Paul wrote, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. So, when we're thinking about joining a church, what church should we join? According to Jesus. Okay, one that holds on to his word, that stays true to the Bible, stays true to what Jesus says. So not if they have a band. <laughs> right, yeah. If they've got really good pastor, go to that church, right? <laughs> That's where I'm kind of struggling because um, I really connect to the way that you teach. So I'm like, oh, shoot, what if I would have gone to another place and I really trusted somebody? And, you know, they can take God's word and twist it. And I said, oh, I can see that. Mm-hmm. You know, that's... Right. Which is why, I mean, I mean, the Lord's brought you here. Hallelujah. That's kind of his plan. You know, I can't always explain how he works. But the Bible does put a big onus on teachers and preachers to say that I will be judged more harshly. When it comes time to judgment, if I have led someone astray, if I have hurt somebody or pushed someone away from the church, that's that's on me and, and, and I'm going to pay for that, you know. The priest of the Catholic Church or the preacher um, neighborhood, they honestly think that they're doing right. Right, exactly. So that's where it's tough. Yeah, and they, I mean, the Bible even says that in the last days, in which we're living, that people will believe a lie and then God actually will send them a delusion so that they, they think they're doing the, God's work, but they're really not. You know, so again, it, <clears throat> it's kind of a spiraling. You know, it gets worse and worse rather than better and better. It's sad for them because they think that they're doing something right. Right, exactly. And then we can pray for them and, you know, and encourage, you know. And I always I always try to, like I met all the clergy in town when I first came. You know, I'll go out and talk and I'm not against introducing myself and finding out what their church is like and, and witnessing to them too and saying, well, you know, when I get asked to... Um, to participate in something, I say, no, like, no, we don't, we don't agree on this. I can't just, you know, roll into your place and, yeah. So that, that leads to the next one. What, what should we avoid? This is kind of the Romans 16 passage. Churches that cause division and the obstacles. Okay. Churches that cause division, put obstacles contrary to what you've learned. So really, those churches that are twisting or denying God's word, the Bible, Paul says, Jesus says, the Bible says, stay away from them, watch out, avoid them. And this is one thing that makes us kind of unique on the Christian scene in America, in the world today, that when there is this division, 
that we avoid, that we see something wrong in another church. Not that we're better than them, but we don't have a worship service with them. We don't take communion at the Roman Catholic Church because Paul says, keep away from them. They teach things contrary. They put obstacles in your faith. They tell you to say your ten Hail Marys. Keep away from them. Yeah, Pam. So what if you're raised in a different church, Catholic church or whatever? Then in some ways, I could say that that person would say that it's contrary to what they learned. Exactly. Yep, yep. Which is the way it was for a long time. I mean, in the in the 1500s and 1600s, like the Lutherans and the Catholics and the, the Reformed, they would have they would have meetings to try and talk about what does God's word say, and they would never pray at those things. They would never have a joint worship service. So even back then, they recognized there's differences. We should we're not in agreement. We should stay separate. Now, ever since the early 1900s, there's been what's called the ecumenical movement. Where they're they're like, well, let's all get along, you know, and th- that has really swept the globe. So you've got everybody trying to get together. That's why you have like a prayer service in Yankee Stadium after 9/11, and you've got the the imam and the rabbi and the Catholic priest and the Methodist minister, and they're all kind of up there and they're all praying and and this big this spirit, which is really contrary to what Paul says. Even if you're a different faith from Lutheran. Paul says, don't go after those who teach things contrary. Don't, you know, he says, watch out for them. Avoid them. He doesn't say pray with them and worship with them. And you're right. You're absolutely right. If they were following the Bible, they would have to say. So even like we talked about this a little bit with Holy Communion, that we have close communion. It's for our members. It's, it's part of this. It's tied together to this. That if there is somebody who doesn't believe what we teach, I'm not saying you're not part of the Holy Christian Church. I'm not saying you don't believe in Jesus. I'm not saying that uh, I don't love you, but I love you enough to follow what God says here, that there, there is a separation, a distinction between us. Yeah. And so again, well, you know, why, are we, why are we where we are today? Right? It's all by grace. It's not, I mean, we, yeah, we make decisions and things like that, but it's not like, I made the, the ten right decisions, so I'm on the good team. You know, it's always grace. It's always God's undeserved love, um, and we pray for those who maybe are in. Uh, you know, maybe they recognize in the, their church things aren't right here. I don't like this, or or um, or, or why don't we baptize babies, or or why don't we? You know, they're they're maybe wrestling with that stuff. Well, we can encourage them and pray for them. Um, and we don't have to slam the door on them. Yeah, this this passage, Romans 16, really I'm thinking more the, the the public expressions of our faith. You know, in a private setting, you you might know your loved ones a, a little bit better, right? You can you can I wouldn't say avoid your loved ones all the time, you know. Um, publicly though, we're trying to send a clear message. So I, I don't I don't preach at another church in town except for faith, because we are united in what we believe and teach. So that's that's our and yeah and the, the, what we call that um, which it's not really it's, it's kind of our phrase but what I, what I'm talking about here is is called church fellowship. So church fellowship is kind of the official 
Um, you know, we'll say we're not in fellowship with somebody. We're not in fellowship with the Missouri Synod. We're very close to the Missouri Synod and what they teach, but there are some differences, so we're not in fellowship. Um, we can, we still have what I, what, what we often call Christian fellowship that I can say they're, they're believers. You know, I'll see them in heaven. Um, they love their Lord. They, they, they're trying to follow his word. That we have that Christian fellowship, but the, the formal, like, church fellowship is, is not, um, not something we can have with them. And this is a, I, I, I have an eight week Bible study on this whole topic. So this is like the Cliff Notes version of this, because there's a lot of practical application that comes into our lives. So that's also part of this course, is to kind of whet your appetite when we talk about these things, you know, again. Um, okay, so how do we know if a church teaches God's truth? Um, you, you ever been to the doctor? You ever liked what the doctor said? And, or not liked what the doctor said? What do you do? Get a second opinion, right? That's not a bad thing. Um, and in a sense, God wants us to get a second opinion when it comes to what a church teaches. So, where do we get the opinion, though? First John 4 verse 1. John wrote, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So what, what's he talking about? Spirits. Like, ooh, ghosts? What's he talking about? Teach, yeah, the teachings, the teacher. Test them. Okay, yeah, test the spirit that's in a person, right? Because there are a lot of false teachers out there. So how do we do that as Christians? Okay, through the Word. Taking what they say and comparing it with God's Word. So God wants us to compare what they teach with the Bible. That's the second opinion, really, that God wants us to have, is to check it with the Bible. So that's why I never, I've never gotten upset with somebody that, that has said to me, uh, Pastor, you said this in your sermon, but I was reading in the Bible this. How does that square? I say, man, that's like, holy cow, <laughs> let's talk. <laughs> you know, that you, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, you weren't, you weren't fading away into Neverland. Yeah. Um, that, that's a good thing. Right? And like what we, what we have at the end of our lesson sometimes, like this one has a section of this we believe, and it's got way more Bible passages and way more information. It's like, go through that, read it, and then see, test what, what it says there, look up the Bible passages, maybe look up other Bible passages that come to mind, and, and test it. And that's how you can see that what we are teaching is in line with God's Word. The Bereans, yeah. They they tested what Paul said. Yep. But we don't see any Berean churches today, do we? Oh, like um there's a Berean Baptist church. <laughs> yeah. There were I, there was one in the in, in Wisconsin where I came from. But yeah. But yeah, Berean, the Berean Christians were a good example. Paul preached to them and then they went back to their synagogue their house of worship, and they examined everything he said in the Bible. And that's like, and they are, the Bible lifts them up and, and even says they were of more noble character than the other Christians because they went and examined that. doesn't mean it's easy to do, 
right? It's, it takes a lot of work to kind of think through some of this. So, um, Okay, so we've got our the Holy Christian Church here. All right, now, um, kind of thinking into the... Um, the running of a church. So we've got what church do we belong to? How do you test it? And then when you're part of it, what is how, who's got the right to run the church? Right. Um, 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 to 14. Uh, Just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. So this is talking about the, the holy Christian church. We're one body. Who's the head of this body? Okay, Christ again. He, like He's the cornerstone. He's also the head. Um, and then the privilege, the right, and the responsibility of kind of running a church, who does that belong to? All the parts have the right, actually. The congregation. And actually, in our church, the highest authority is the voters' assembly. And the voters' assembly is the... I mean, under the Word of God, obviously, following the Word of God. But that that when we come together as a congregation, together, that's really the ultimate. And then we elect people to serve on our behalf in our church board and our elders so that we don't have to... uh, you know, meet every month. I think when the church started, I think Pastor Prangy told me they met every month. <laughs> they had a voters meeting every month. And that was basically their church board, you know. But all of you, and the point is that as a member of Christ's body, you have gifts and abilities that God wants to use. And so you've got the right, you've got the privilege, you've got the responsibility to run the church, to be the church. It's not just the pastor's job. It's not just the, the elected board's job. It's everybody's job. We're all, we're the body of Christ. And so he wants us to work. Um, okay, then, but there are some specific positions within the church, such as we've been talking about. So Acts 20, verse 28. Paul's talking here. Paul says, guard yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So Paul was talking to the leaders of the church and said, watch yourselves, watch over the flock, and it's the Holy Spirit that has put you in charge of that flock. So that, that this, has, this, is, this has a role in the operation of a church too. And what are we talking about here? The office of? The work of a? Who, who's, who's often seen as like the overseer of a church? Who, the pastor, right? So there is a role for that. I mean, Dave mentioned it before, that the pastor is the overseer of the flock. And with regard to pastor, this is one thing that is not necessarily very popular, but is in the Bible. So I want to just give you the placement for it. First Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. So this is what God said. Let a woman learn quietly... With all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
I know. Yeah. So, I mean, some of the language is not, you know, very woke, right? Um, but think of what is God saying here? He's talking that there is an order that Adam was created first, then Eve, right? And so how do we in the church reflect that order? That, that's kind of the tough question, right? One way that we do it is that we have like only pastors, only men serve as pastors. Because it does specifically say, I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. So the exercising authority is the real issue. Because teaching, I mean, we've got women teaching all over the place, right? I mean, school teachers, Sunday school, um, you know, Bible classes, women are teaching. That's not a bad thing. So it's really when the teaching becomes authoritative over a man, and really, the, the way that happens most often is in, like, as a pastor. So, okay, so we're, we're trying to use the gifts that God has given women to teach, to encourage, to train. But we do have to draw a line somewhere, and so it's with pastors. And in our church structure, then, it's with the leaders of the church being men. Not that women couldn't be. I mean, that's just kind of silly to think nowadays that a woman couldn't do it or doesn't have the intellectual capability. I mean, 100 or 150 years ago, things were different. You know, most women didn't go to college. Um, you know, there are stories told during the Civil War of when women heard cannon fire, they, they fainted. You know, I mean, women are way tougher <laughs> today than they were back then. Uh, in some respects, I mean, I think... Um, it's all relative. But all that cultural stuff aside, that's what you got to kind of get the culture out of the way and what is the Bible getting at here. So is this just talking about church? Or is it because let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness? And... Yeah, that, this is directly in, in church as, a, as kind of a congregation. And even that, you know, it, it doesn't mean that a woman shouldn't talk like in Bible class or in church, you know what I mean? It's more of a spirit that recognizes what God's saying here and, and not wanting to overthrow it. You know, that's, that's really the heart of it. So, your comments, your questions. Yeah, that would be the the exercising. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's where I mean, kind of how you view the vote is 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 part of the issue. Like a lot of us as Americans view the vote as like giving our opinion, right? I get to give my opinion on a referendum. You know, should we legalize gay marriage or not? You know, should we pass us a ban on, you know, plastic straws or not? You know, we get a referendum. So it's more our opinion. But really, the Bible talks about, like, a casting a ballot. The Bible does talk about this as, like, this is a voice of authority. That when you vote on something, you're actually, you, you're trying to bind everybody else. This, you're exerting your will, right? This is what I want. And I want everybody else to go the same direction I'm going. And I feel passionate about it that I'm going to vote that way. So that's why historically as a church, we've viewed the vote more as an exercise of the will, like, like trying to exert your will over everybody. And so I think, I mean, I've never had a problem with everybody giving their opinion. Like let's take a poll of the congregation. Who's in favor of this 
as a, as a general consensus, you know, and let's say 75% of the people are against something, well, the men would be, a, you know, stupid to vote for it, you know, if, the, if most people don't want to do it, you know. That's where I think there's got to be, like, our, our church structure is not handed down from God, right? We're trying to do what God has said here, that a, that a, a woman learns in quietness and submissiveness, and that they don't exercise authority over a man. We're trying to do that to the best of our ability, and um, it might rub you the wrong way. I'm, I'm, I've, got, I've got a wife, too. I'm not stupid, right? Um, but th- that's what it comes down to, yeah. So... Yeah, and I think yeah, again, and the Bible when the Bible talks about male leadership, what's the what's the what's the model for men? Who who is the model for a man to be a leader in the church? I'm putting you guys on the spot. Who's the model? Christ, yeah. And what does he do? He sacrifices. He lays down his life. He sacrifices what he wants, not my will, but thy will be done. And he does what's best for the church, his body. So that, again, good male leadership is saying, what do you want? What's best for our congregation? And in it, when you've got a like, husband-wife, that you can maybe have more conversations about what we should do at church and taking into account that input. Um, I think as leaders, one thing that we've talked about, like with the elders, is how do we get input from the single women, the widows? How do we include their voice in the decision-making process. Yeah? Yeah? Oh, yeah, exactly. I mean, that, and that's what we, you've got to reach out to them. You've got to provide forums for openness and, and discussion because um, this, is, this is their church too. That's why the first thing I said, who's got the right, the responsibility, and the privilege to run the church? All of us. Yeah, yeah. Some churches have a different structure where they have like um, um, they have like a board, like like kind of like a, a board of elders that make all the decisions, and then they have congregational meetings that are more like open forums, and that people don't really take a vote. They don't have a vote at all. It's the board makes the decisions after hearing from everybody, and but then that board would be all men still because of trying to reflect what what God says. Yeah. Yeah. So again, again, like in our society, it's it's. This is where we have to go the extra mile as, well, Wisconsin Synod Lutherans and as male leaders to make sure we're not, you know, being heavy-handed or I'm the man. This is the way it is. You know that whole attitude. What, what woman wants to go to that church, right? But if there's a church that is where women's voices are matter and they're included, women can serve on any board. Um, in the church, except for the Board of Elders, they can serve, and we've got women on our school board and our evangelism team and our CIA, and there's like all this stuff going on. So it's not that they can't participate and take ownership of it. It's just we're trying to reflect certain things the Bible says. And it is God's word. We don't need to be ashamed of it. It's, it's God's word. Applying it is kind of where it gets sticky. And... Um, and, and doing it in a loving way. Okay, um, 
Alright, then the next thing. What has God called the church to do? Um, what has Jesus commanded that we do? Matthew 28, 19-20. Jesus said, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So what are Christians to do? Okay, teach all nations and baptize all nations, right? And teach them to obey everything, right? To observe, the the word obey kind of has like this, uh, like rules connotation. But in Greek, Jesus said, teach them to hold on to everything, observe everything, trust everything that, that we tell them, you know. Um, I don't want to leave any of God's promises out of our teaching because it's all God's word. It's all inspired. It's all useful for our daily lives. So we do that. That's the mission of the church right there. And um, so then, okay, so you've got a church whose mission is to change society. Right? Have you heard of this? Change society. It's called liberation theology. And it focuses on the social gospel, that the gospel of Jesus is to set you free from the social institutions and the social oppression that you feel. That's really what God's word is about. And it's very, it's very, very, I mean, this is kind of the movement for, unfortunately, the movement for a lot of like, um, Churches that, that do work among the homeless because they're, they're trying to change society with, that the mission of the church is really an earthly mission rather than a heavenly mission. Right? Your mission is to transform society rather than to be God's people thinking about life beyond this world. You know? um, so that's why we, we don't do a lot. I mean, we, we, we're willing to help people. I mean, we've got, I've got some bags of food if somebody comes in and they need help, like we're not against any of that stuff. But our main mission is to preach and teach God's word. And we're certainly ready to help anybody in need. But that's why we don't run like a, we've got limited resources too. I mean, I'd love to run like a soup kitchen or something, but that's not our primary mission. Um, okay, so we also, part of our mission is also what Jesus says next in uh, John 20, verse 23. Jesus said, if you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. And in a similar vein, in Matthew 18, Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. But if he will not listen... Take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So, what are we talking about here? The important work of announcing forgiveness or withholding forgiveness, where you tell people they're not forgiven, is called the ministry of the keys. This is basically what we're doing when we're preaching and teaching God's word. 
is we're announcing to people Jesus has died for your sins. But there also comes a time where we withhold that from people. Where we say you are not forgiven. And that's in Matthew 18. So Jesus says if there's a brother or sister who sins, go and talk to them one-on-one. Why would you want to talk to them one-on-one? What do you think? think they won't be as defensive. Okay, yeah. Won't be as defensive. I mean, the goal is to win somebody over, to win them to repentance. You know, the Bible always says, you know, win somebody to repentance um, in love. So you're really not going there and like, what are you doing? How can you do this? You know, that's not the attitude. It's, hey, um, I think you just, I think you, you're, you just cheated. Is that really what you wanted to do? And maybe you're wrong too. Going privately to somebody allows you to be, to, to be open to that. And then the Bible says, well, if they don't listen to you, then take two or three others along. You know, take people along to say, hey, are you, do you recognize how dangerous this is? Do you recognize this is bad for your soul? And then if they don't listen to that person, then it, the, Jesus says, uh, if they don't listen to those witnesses, then tell it to the church. So tell it to the pastor, tell it to the leaders of the church, tell it to the congregation. And if they won't listen to them, Jesus says, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So, this is this again is something that we call church discipline. Church discipline. Where we're not, it's not kicking somebody out of church. It's not going to them and thinking you're better than them and this is really where we go to people in love who are maybe struggling with a sin that is hurting their faith, and we say to them, hey, um, watch out. What's going on here? Are you sure you want to do that? Um, this, for, this more formal thing is, is not something that happens a lot. I think the initial stage happens a lot where people we talk to somebody who's maybe struggling and we say, hey, what's going on? Um, and and you do that one-on-one thing happens a lot. And hopefully you win the person over and they recognize, yeah, I know I shouldn't be doing that. And you, you can kind of work through that a little bit. But when it gets further in the line, that's when it's tough. Um, that's when it's difficult to deal with. Yeah. And the final, the final, so I'll just read this quick paragraph and then I see Dave's got a hand. The church has the power to forgive those who are sorry for their sins and trust in Christ. This is done publicly in worship and privately as Christians console one another. We do this all the time. Uh, The church likewise condemns those who will not repent. The final act of love for such an impenitent person is called excommunication. Right? The final step is called excommunication. And it's not kicking somebody out of church. It's recognizing that their impenitence has put them outside the communion of saints. Ex communion, outside the communion. When they persist in that sin, when they're not sorry for that sin, when they're going to keep doing that sin, they are really saying, I don't need Jesus as a Savior. And they're outside of it. And in my ministry, I've only done this 
once where I've actually excommunicated somebody. Where, where, because a lot of times people will just kind of say, I don't want to be part of your church. Right? You'll, you'll, you'll start, you'll go to them and they'll say, I'm, I haven't been to that church in 10 years. I don't want anything to do with you guys. You know? But if there's somebody who's coming every Sunday and they are saying, what I'm doing is fine and you can't tell me otherwise. It was actually one of our teachers left his wife and was convinced that he should still be a teacher in the school and that he should still be able to come to church and come to communion. And I was like, man, there are so many problems with this. we got to talk. Uh, and he was convinced that he was not in the wrong, even though I know he taught. He taught to the, his kids that divorce for that reason was not part of God's plan and not good. And yet he was convinced that he was going to be okay and that, that I, I couldn't tell him otherwise. And we, you know, we'd had elders come and we had members of the church go and talk to him. And it was just a, the devil like totally blinded him, pulled, pulled strings over his eyes. And, you know, what do you do? What do you do? You just, this is why excommunication is really like a, the strongest warning you can give a person. Like if you die in this state, impenitent, not sorry for your sins, there's only one place you end up. And I don't want you to go there. And that, that's a, so that, this is kind of the side of church work that is a little bit more serious. And not, you know, you know, going and making disciples, baptizing, that's like fun. Like, tell somebody about Jesus. Well, sometimes this message too needs to be, the other side of the coin is true. Um, in Lutheran churches, when they first started doing what we do at the beginning, where the pastor says, um, you know, you can, we confess our sins, and then the pastor says, um, as a called servant of Christ and by his authority, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You can be sure that, that your sins are forgiven in heaven. Um, we have the power to forgive sins like that. When that first came into churches, the Lutherans also tacked on another statement. But to all of you who are not sorry for your sins, I want you to know you're not forgiven and heaven remains close to you. We've kind of taken that out of our services. <laughs> But but it still is true that if someone isn't sorry, they don't believe, they're impenitent, unrepentant, that their sins are not forgiven because not because Jesus didn't die for them, but but sin actually acts like a wall. You know, so you've got happy 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 Joe Christian here, and you've got God over here, and God loves you know Joe Christian, but his sin ends up being like a wall between him and God. And that's why repentance is, is that pleading with God, take away my sins. You know, have mercy on me, O Lord. And, and, and Jesus has died for them. Jesus has taken away that sin, but they want to build that wall. And that's why impenitence, not being sorry for your sin, is so dangerous because it basically says, yeah, the wall's there, no big deal. And you might know in your head that Jesus is your Savior, but is your heart really in it? You know, that, that's, and that's, only God can say that. You know, what we do as a church is we, we look at the outward circumstances and, and go by what somebody says with their, with their mouth and with their life 
and we sometimes we when we could be wrong, you know, we're not we're not God. In the end, He'll determine it. But we do have this call to follow Matthew 18, to do it in love, to be patient. Um, yeah, so a lot of heavy stuff here. But keep in mind, First John 1, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So, so why did they feel it was necessary to take that second part out? That was my question. Um, I think because it, 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 it can create doubt. You know, I, I want you to believe the gospel. When I proclaim the forgiveness of sins, I want everybody to know that they are forgiven, that Jesus did die for them. I don't want them thinking, am I really sorry? Am I really sorry for my sins? You know, you almost get self-doubt. So that's why they took it out, to remove that. But I think that's it's actually good because if I was sitting there and still doing bad stuff, I'd be like... <laughs> Put a little fear of God into you? <laughs> uh, yeah, and that's where I think our, our private conversations and our private encouragement really come into play to really say, hey, th- this this isn't the right path for you to walk. Are you sure? You know, um, and, and hitting somebody in the head in a service isn't always the most loving way to, to encourage them um, <laughs> in the right path. So. so do you know whatever happens to that teacher? That not, not, I, I, um, not sure. I'm not sure. He's on the No, no, no. He, uh, no, I, it, yeah. I still pray for him. I still, I still hope he comes to repentance. Yeah. But, yeah, so that, that's the end of our lesson for, for tonight. Um, then the ending, I'll just entrust like the summary. And if you look on the bottom of page five, it has the work of the Holy Spirit that, um, a good good reminder of that we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, and that He's working, calling us to faith, strengthening us, helping us. That uh, it's all a gift from God. We just gotta throw ourselves at Him and and say, "Help me, help me, help me." So we'll start next time with the questions. I went back to true false. I'm really sorry. <laughs> I tried, but we went back to that, and we'll we'll do more. Um, if you have any questions from tonight too we're getting a little late but if you have any questions we'll start next time with answering um, like like your questions anonymously so let's pray heavenly father thank you for sending your son to die for us and for all people thank you for calling us to faith to trust this good news to make it our own Uh, help us lord to live in repentance and faith all our days. Help us to turn to you and to, to let go of, of whatever sins we might consider our, our little pets that we kind of like. Help us to just lay them at your feet and know that you have forgiven us and that you love us. Uh, bless us as we travel home and rest in that love. Amen. Okay. okay.